The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Good morning, Long Island, and welcome to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Romas, and again, so glad that you can join us this morning as we share and explore all relevant issues related to autism spectrum disorder. This morning, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Flora Vaccarino. Again, Dr. Vaccarino is the Harris Professor at the Child Center the Child Studies Center and Professor of Neuroscience at Yale University. She directs the Developmental Neurobiology Lab and the Program in Neurodevelopment and Regeneration at Yale University. Dr. Vaccarino's lab uses animal models and human brain tissue to unravel the pathophysiology of neuropsychiatric disorders. And when we first spoke, part one last week, was about that, what that really means, what that looks like, and how it has implications for uh, for autism. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Vaccarina. Hello. Hello. I'm very happy, very happy to be here talking to you and to our listeners. Uh, thank you. Thank you. We're happy to have you here. Maybe we could begin for listeners who might be uh, tuning in for the first time, if you don't mind, with a just a brief summary of uh, what you were able to explain to us uh, last week, and then we'll make that the departure point for some talk about future research, perhaps, and where this might all be going. So if you don't mind taking uh, just a few minutes to, to bring us all back up to speed. Okay. So as I was saying the last time, um, so we're, we're focusing our work on um, uh, patients and individuals, patients and families with autism. And um, we take an in individualized approach using this um, model called organoid, brain organoids. Basically, these are sort of in vitro, in a dish, model of the real brain. And we make them from cells that we obtain from each patient and each control. Um, and it's too complicated to explain uh, in, in this setting, but this, this we take normal cells, you know, say cells from the skin, for example, very small number of cells, and then we reprogram them. We modify them, make them into a stem cell. And that stem cell grows in vitro and goes through the same similar processes that in vivo, in a, in a very small human embryo, um, make the brain. So we go from a cell that is immature to the one that's more mature, eventually becomes a neuron, eventually becomes a more mature neuron. And so we can yeah. kind of watch this process and the way it happens in patients and, and other individuals. I, I think some of the operative words uh, that we can really hold on to uh, is the idea that the important, the important not idea, the fact that this is done in vitro which allows uh, for some control and also uh, some uh, differences, perhaps, as you explained uh, uh, last week, uh, in terms of it being or not being an exact match to in vivo uh, uh, production of this and may impose uh, certain constraints. But the good part, of course, is that we don't butt up against the controversy that could be 
uh, involved in using embryonic cells and destroying those. So this is a, a, a very different, uh, not very different, but this is exciting for no, if for no other reason, uh, that it opens up the door to ethical science in this area. So this really works on a lot of. And that's why we were excited so much when the model could be possible, could be made possible by this reprogramming technique, because we don't destroy any real embryo. We just take cells from a person, from an adult or a child or whatever, and then make them into something very similar as a real embryonic cell. Sure. And then, as you said, we, do, we discover how that cell develops. Mm -hmm. And we did find differences in patients with autism with respect to their unaffected family members that made us very curious and very excited that perhaps this could be used for therapeutic or diagnostic purposes. Let, let's revisit that because it will not hurt any of us to kind of hear that explained. Uh, okay. Again, let's talk about some of the differences. So uh, we, we had 13 families and we compare patients uh, to their unaffected father. So these were all males for the time being. And um, we compare them across the time. We do a longitudinal analysis across time. And we found that the patients uh, were in, there were two categories. We found two biologically different types of autism. Those patients that had larger heads and larger brain had an excess of excitatory neuron, which are the neurons that excite other neurons in the normal brain. And other patients that did not have the larger brain size had a defect in the same type of neurons. And so they were both imbalanced with respect to control, but imbalanced in opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that, the reason for that was intrinsic to the cells because these organoids develop in a way that kind of recapitulates what that person perhaps was doing months, years before, you know, in real development. So uh, we think it reflects aspects of that development that are unique each person now that's that's probably very important i just want to confirm my understanding i think you said that this may be intrinsic to sex did i get that right to cells to the cells oh, to cells okay could also, be, that. Could also be sex there could also be sex differences well that's what I, that, yes that's what i thought now, maybe you could spend a moment because i know you're going to replicate some of this i believe with females uh, as as well as we're doing it we're doing it oh, now okay. uh, we're we're actually obtaining cells from female patients uh we're in the process of doing so i i can't speak of it at the moment but it's definitely our intention to see because as we know females have less uh, you know there is fewer females with autism but it's also thought that those females that have autism may have a um, a more severe form of autism perhaps so uh, we're we're going to try to find out what what kind of differences we see in these organoids models of autism between males and females. We're hoping to do that in the near future. Do you have any thoughts? Do you, do you anticipate at this early juncture uh, any any kind of results, or is it just too early to speculate? I think it's too early to say. Really, I really can't tell at the moment because um, we're you know you you need to again each individual is different, right? So because there are individual differences, even among the control and even more among the patients, you have to have a certain number of lines, a certain number of individuals in your experimental setup before you can really reach any conclusions. Because there is variability, which is normal. We're not identical. So Yeah, no, that 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 resonates. So it's uh, enormous variation and 
the study that, that I, I looked at was, as, as I'd mentioned, used uh, the affected sons of unaffected uh, uh, fathers. And it seems like there would be so many permutations of that over time. You would look at the females of unaffected fathers and, and perhaps affected fathers, and it just goes in so many different directions. But here's an odd question from me. And again, it's probably a very naive question, but this expressed itself, uh, it was expressed in differences in head circumference. Is it plausible that this will be a factor in females, but it will express itself differently and even differently physically? We already know that there aren't as many macrocephalic females as there are males. Right. Autism. There are few females that have large heads and large brains, but there are not as many as there are in the males. But of course, it's hard to make statistics because there are fewer females, period, with autism. So they're, they're hard to recruit and they're hard to obtain. And so we'll have to make an effort to get more. And, and also another thing that females have, it's thought to be that they have a, high, a higher genetic load. Mm-hmm, of course, right. there is the so-called protective factor in female people are talking about. And it's been proposed that female, there is fewer female with autism because female have an intrinsic protective factor that's given by their differences in brain development being females. So we're very interested in how these organoids, even in controls, males and females may differ in their basic development because if there is a protective factor in females we want we definitely want to know about what that factor might be because we may want to use it right oh certainly uh that's interesting the idea of a protective factor that we're actually looking to find we don't know what that is or i'm assuming that we don't know if it is but we're if, if we would like to know what it is if it is the other piece say, you know, I can't help but, but think, are, are we really certain that there really is a difference in prevalence? I mean, for a long time, we've considered that in females, we're just not, we're not recognizing it or we're not identifying it correctly. Uh, and I think, I, I think that may be, a, what do you think? That could be a factor in terms of what we can infer from the studies. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, the differences are quite, quite large, four to one. So even if there is, a difficulty in diagnosing autism in female, I think at the moment we are faced with a large difference in caseload. And when we recruit patients for such studies as we do, it takes so long and it's so expensive that we can just look for any hint. You know, we have to have a firm diagnosis with certain criteria just for a patient to enter in our study. So we do, we are, you know, we have to go with traditional diagnostic criteria. But I admit that, yes, diagnostic criteria are just diagnostic criteria. Just the fact that we see these imbalances with, which suggest different mechanism of autism, you know, pathogenesis, yet we're faced with the fact that the symptoms are very similar. So what does that mean? What does that mean? And what are, and what are we calling autism? Which yes, gets that-, the, right? that gets into the mix as, as well. You know, we have to go to, for, for a very quick break. We'll come right back. And when we do, let's pick up where we left off and talk about, if you would, if you would, Dr., uh, where you see this going even above and beyond the issue of autism. Because as we know, this kind of cell work has enormous implications for so many areas of human development. So folks, stay with us. You're listening to GDI and Autism on 103.9 FM. Welcome to 
Welcome back, Long Island. You're listening to DDI on Autism 103.9 FM. Continue our conversation with Dr. Flora Vaccarino. You know, we left off, Doctor, with some speculation around where all this very depthful research might go even outside of and beyond uh, its implications for autism spectrum disorder. And that's a large, large question. So I think I'd like to rephrase it and ask you, if you would, to talk a little bit about where you'd like to see the research go. Okay. Uh, that's not a simple question. <laughs> but let me start from what we know right now at this moment of our research. So we did analyze the genome, the genomic sequence of the patients that we were studying in our organoids. And we found that there wasn't a simple relationship between the sequence of certain genes in terms of alterations in that sequence and the expression of those genes in the organoids, okay? So one thing is a gene that's actually active in a cell and one gene, and another thing is the gene sequence in, in the nucleus of that cell. So. What we concluded is from this is was that it wasn't easy to explain what we saw in terms of these imbalances, which of course are driven by certain genes and proteins that are expressed. There wasn't a single unique cause. It was too complicated, too complex. And so there is perhaps many then genes that they, each of them has a small effect, but altogether they cooperate and converge and cause a certain imbalance, for example, an excitatory neuron or a certain phenotype. So, so then the question arose, what's, why is there is this misexpression in genes? Why, um, why, you know, if the gene itself is not altered, why is it higher or lower in certain individuals? And the question to that is actually already known. We know from basic biology that genes the, the DNA of a person, the portion that of that DNA that's occupied by a gene is only 2%, 1% of the genome. What is the rest of the genome, human genome doing? It's regulating. It's called regulating, regulatory elements. So that means this so-called junk DNA is not really junk. It's actually regulating the expression of genes. So, so it's a very complex architecture. So the genome, the chromosomes, the DNA folds in complicated way. And this folding, this architecture actually regulates the expression of genes. So the gene in itself may be normal, but this expression, the, the level of expression of that gene could be higher or could be lower, in depending on how the DNA is folded and how this regulatory element, you know, whether there could be mutations. In, in these other regions of the genome that regulate the gene. So our next step, which we already actually did, and we have a paper now um, already in the workings, where we actually looked at these regulatory elements, and we found that the same patients that had this imbalance in excitatory neurons had an imbalance in this activity of regulatory elements that were driving, driving those genes those excitatory neuron genes. So it's a very complex thing, but you know it all boils down, yes, to alterations in DNA, but it may not be a simple alteration in a gene, maybe a very complex alterations in multiple locations that eventually conspire to increase or decrease the level of expression of a gene. 
And so that you know, raises question about therapeutics because you, you may not want to just do a simple you know, gene substitution or gene therapy the way it is done for certain other disorders where you can identify a single gene. At this early juncture of research, are you finding that that regulatory process that you've, you've mentioned, is it predictable based on what you already know about the gene? Is it something that you can expect to see or does it, does it change? Is that, is that the core of the mutations that is so strong that you can't predict it? You can predict. Uh, again, it's different in different individuals, but overall, yes, you can, and it changes during development too, because certain pre- certain regulatory elements are active early and other are active late. So the time is a big factor, but that's normal, that's development. But we do find that when you mutate some of these regulatory elements, you predictably alter the expression mm-hmm. of the downstream gene. And in this paper that we're still working on, and hopefully will be out soon, for the very same patients for which we did the study that you mentioned, we actually looked at these regulatory elements. And, you know, it's extremely complex, but you can kind of make an architecture. You can find first level regulator, second level regulator, third level regulator. So you have the regulators of the regulators. Uh, The genome, human genome is so complex that is totally amazing. And again, genes are only 1% of the genome. Just think about that. What is the rest doing? Why is it there? <laughs> yeah. No, it, 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 when you just said, just think about it, my head just about exploded because it is enormous. It is, it's, it's, it's absolutely enormous. The possibilities. Do you find, do you find, doctor, that as, as we contemplate this and think about this in this, in this moment, that there is, species and survival value in that enormous amount of variation? Is that a way of ensuring heterogeneity in the, in the population? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And we know that, that some of this distinguishes us from higher primates, and some of it distinguishes us from each other. We know that this variation is different in different populations. And we know that some of it is adaptive, some of it is maladaptive, and and all together they'll confer certain robustness to the system because mm-hmm. when, when you have multiple elements contributing to a phenomenon, if you mutate one, it may not be enough to cause a big problem, right? Mm-hmm. Mutations in many of the elements that do have a common function in order to see an actual phenomenon occur. And this is what exactly what we think happen in developmental disorder. First of all, they're early. So early phenomena, you know, they impact a lot of things because they happen early. And so, you know, a lot depends on those early phenomena, obviously, right? So that's one thing. And second, you know, they, they, they're like at the top of a cascade. You know, so it's very important to identify those early events. And and so that's why we're concentrating on that. But but again, um, there could be compensatory phenomena, too, because, as we said, things are complex. So there is something that's broken. OK, something else compensates for it. Right. And And so the key is to identify when that compensation is not occurring and then you have a disease. So. Mm-hmm. What, what an elegant return uh, to, to, to kind of where uh, some of your work started and some of our conversation around building on animal models, this whole idea of what this can mean and what you're seeing. 
what's what's your very next step? So talk, if you would just talk a little bit more about your current research, because that'll be a cliffhanger for me and our listeners. So uh, first of all, we want to improve these organoids. Right now, we're focusing on one region, which is the forebrain or primarily the cortex. We're now making organoids that represent the entire brain, including regions that uh, contain um, other transmitters that have been deemed important for like dopamine and serotonin and things like that. Um, so we're very excited about this. It's it's a, it's a different, somewhat different type of organoid that includes many different uh, components. And then we want to really try to understand better this regulatory phenomenon I was talking about and try to use the system, uh, if we can, to predict, to predict. So ideally what we have, and unfortunately is a lot of work and that's where, you know, we're just a single lab, you know, and you need lots of resources to do this. If we could do this in 150 people with autism, 150 families, then you can really start making prediction and say, okay, what I see in these organoids is this. I predict that your symptoms will improve, or I predict that, you know, you, you know, you, you, you need more help, right? For example. And, and if you can do that ahead of time, you know, then you may be able to help patients. Another thing is clinical trials, you know. You may stratify patients and say, okay, this type of patients, you know, and this other type are different. So when you try a drug, uh, for example, you, you already know that these two subgroups may respond differently. You take that into account, which may really save you, you know, I mean, reveal things that otherwise if you put them together you see nothing right but it could be that you actually have a different response and and that goes back to the imbalance i was talking before right if you take these two patients tight together in the same clinical trial you find that half respond in one way and half respond in the other way and then you know there is no significant effect but in fact there is just heterogeneity of patients it's clear to me you know we're on the precipice of uh, some really explosive new and exciting understanding of 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 how we of how we of how we develop and how and how we live uh my my own feeling is that what you're doing is very very important and this kind of work it historically doesn't happen in a vacuum so i i'm very curious to see where the, the, the science in general, where the literature is going uh, around this. I, I hope I can invite you back. I have a feeling you're going to be in a very exciting place in, in less than a year. So I hope you'll come back and do some follow-up with us. Absolutely. I'll be glad to. I'll be I very- appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. Dr. Flora Vaccarino, exciting, exciting research in the area of genetics in relationship to autism and our new word for the for the week will be definitely be organoids and we're all going to like absorb that thank you for making this palatable to us i, I, I genuinely appreciate it the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station jvc broadcasting management or its sponsors